It's May 2021 in Linfield, Massachusetts. Linfield is a small but prosperous town, 20 minutes north of Boston. A neat two-story home on Carter Lane is home to the Randall family. Thomas and Kathy have raised their daughter Ashley here, filling the house with happy memories. The current mood inside is far from that, though. Aged 73, Thomas Randall knows that his days are numbered. He has been diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. All Kathy and Ashley can do now is make his final moments as comfortable as possible. Thomas is a popular guy. As a former golf pro turned car salesman, he's crossed paths with many of the residents of Linfield over the years. He's known as a kind and cheery man, always happy to help anyone in need. But Thomas Randall has a secret, one he has kept from everyone close to him for over 50 years, even from his wife. Since his diagnosis, it has become like a weight around his neck. With no idea how long he has left, he makes a decision, one that will change his family's life forever. Randall summons his wife and daughter to his bedside. He says he has something he needs to get off his chest. What he shares shocks them and calls into question everything they've ever known about him. His name, he tells them, isn't Thomas Randall. It's actually Theodore John Conrad, and he has been on the FBI's most wanted list since he strolled out of a bank vault in 1969 carrying a bag stuffed with cash valued around $1.7 million by today's standards. He has been on the run ever since, but couldn't bring himself to take his secret to his grave. Randall passes away soon after on May 18th, with the authorities seemingly none the wiser about his deathbed confession. In the months that follow, though, thanks to an anonymous tip-off, the truth behind Conrad's secret double life comes out and makes headlines across the world. But how could a young man pull off such an audacious heist, let alone stay one step ahead of authorities for half a century? The details, as they emerge, make up a story straight out of a Hollywood film. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Ted Conrad, of the words he spoke as he lay dying, about a young man described by some as a typical All-American, his love of a movie that inspired one of the most audacious heists on record. A life spent covering his tracks, always wondering if his past might one day catch up. And a U.S. Marshal determined to solve a case that had stumped his own father for decades. I'm Estefania Hageman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, 
just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Theodore John Conrad is born in Denver on July 10th, 1949. Thanks to his father Edward's career in the Navy, the family move around the country a lot. But his parents get a divorce while Conrad is in elementary school, putting an end to this nomadic lifestyle. He and his sisters settle with their mother, Ruthabeth, in Lakewood, Ohio. Conrad is a popular kid, and a smart one too, with an IQ of 135. When he graduates in 1967, he attends New England College in New Hampshire. His father, now retired from the Navy, is an assistant professor of political science there. For reasons that aren't clear though, Conrad only stays for one semester. After that, he returns home to Lakewood and enrolls at Cuyahoga Community College. It appears the young man has a bright, promising future ahead of him. But in 1968, just one year into his studies, Conrad sees a film that will irrevocably alter the course of his life. The Thomas Crown Affair. Starring Steve McQueen and Faye Dunaway, The Thomas Crown Affair is the tale of a bored millionaire who concocts a brilliant scheme to rob a bank. Something about the story strikes a chord with Conrad. He loves it so much he goes to see it at least a half dozen more times. He starts to mimic McQueen's character, even persuades his grandmother to loan him money to buy a red sports car and drives it around town wearing expensive leather gloves. The film is all Conrad talks about. He often tells his friends about how simple it would be to emulate the heist in the film. In early 1969, Conrad appears to be putting down roots. He starts dating a local girl, Kathleen Einhouse, and gets a job at the Society National Bank headquarters in Cleveland. He still talks about the Thomas Crown Affair often, and even tells several friends that he intends to pull off a similar crime. They dismiss it as a joke, but in July, one day after his 20th birthday, he shows them just how serious he really is. It's July 11th, 1969, just an average Friday in Cleveland when Conrad turns up for his shift at the bank. He has fit in well since he was hired. His bosses even describe him as an ideal employee. Today, though, he's about to shatter that image. Around noon, Conrad heads out to a liquor store, one block south. He buys a bottle of Canadian Club whiskey, wraps it in a brown paper bag, then heads back to work. His role sees him spend a lot of time in the vault, facilitating the flow of money to and from other branches. One crucial difference this week is that his supervisor is in the hospital following surgery. This means fewer pairs of eyes on anything that happens in the most secure part of the bank. As closing time approaches, Conrad tells a colleague who works alongside him in the vault that they can head out early if they want and he'll meet them outside in a few minutes. As soon as he's alone, Conrad gets to work. He grabs his liquor store bag and stashes bundles of bills beneath the bottle. In all, 
he takes $215,000, over 20 times the average salary at the time. Once he's happy with his haul, he exits the vault, stopping to talk to the security guard on his way out of the building at around 4.30. He says goodbye to a colleague outside and hops on a bus back to Lakewood. Home is an apartment on Clifton Boulevard. He wastes no time packing a few clothes in a suitcase along with the money and heading out to the airport to catch a flight. As he exits the building, a little before 7.30 that evening, he sees his landlady watching him. He gives her a wave and a smile as he climbs into a cab. Conrad arrives at Cleveland Airport half an hour later where he calls his girlfriend. He tells her he's heading to Erie, Pennsylvania for a rock concert. And just like that, Ted Conrad vanishes. The theft isn't discovered until the bank reopens for business on Monday the 14th of July. It's the first time in his seven months working there that Conrad hasn't shown up. Once staff realize the money is missing, they quickly put two and two together. Local police are notified and the following day, they enlist the help of the FBI. This means that the story itself doesn't hit the papers until July 16th, a full five days after Conrad disappeared. The very same day, Neil Armstrong and crew launch an Apollo 11, bound for the moon. It's this story that grabs the headlines, so an employee stealing money from a bank barely registers. Even though the eyes of the world are focused elsewhere, the investigation quickly gets into full swing. Agents carry out dozens of interviews, most of which lead nowhere. An old school friend, Russell Metcalf, says that Conrad tried to call him the night of the robbery, but he was out so they hadn't spoken. But when agents speak with Conrad's girlfriend, Kathleen Einhouse, she shares some startling evidence. Conrad has sent her several letters. The postmarks show that he has passed through Cleveland Airport, Washington, D.C., and Englewood, California, in his first week on the run. In these letters, he refers to a seven-year statute of limitations to prosecute him for the crime. He says that they might be able to get back together when it runs out. Luckily for Conrad, he never puts this to the test, as his assumptions are wrong. He would have been arrested and almost certainly convicted. The FBI starts tapping the phones of those they think Conrad might try and contact. This pays off quickly, and they intercept calls he makes to his girlfriend. Frustratingly, though, Conrad is careful about what he says, not giving away anything that might reveal his location. Agents pull together a profile of him. The hope is that it'll help predict where he might go and what he might do. He has a love of sports cars and is a keen golfer, so flyers with his picture and a description are inserted into magazines for both of these interests. The hope is that he'll continue his passion for cars and golfing while on the run and fellow enthusiasts might recognize him, but it yields no results. Knowing his love for the Thomas Crown affair, investigators even reach out to Steve McQueen in case Conrad tried to contact his hero. As far as we can tell, this too leads nowhere. So far, the FBI's investigation has led to a series of dead ends, but they aren't the only ones on Conrad's trail. The US Marshal Service, whose role it is to pursue federal fugitives, 
have assigned a young marshal by the name of John Elliott to the case. Elliott is a Navy veteran who spent nine years as Cuyahoga County Sheriff's deputy before becoming a deputy marshal. For Elliott, the case feels almost personal. He and his family live in Lakewood, not far from Conrad. Elliot used to take his son Pete to a nearby ice cream parlor that Conrad had worked in. He and Conrad even shared the same family doctor. The trail feels like it's going cold, but Elliot is undeterred. To help figure out where Conrad might be, he goes back to before he went on the run. Elliot pulls Conrad's application to New England College from 1967 so that they have handwriting samples on file in case there's ever anything to match it against. He even manages to lift a set of prints belonging to Conrad from the pages. These prints will allow Elliot to positively ID Conrad if they ever catch up with him, or if he gets in more trouble with the law. The case gets under Elliot's skin to the point it follows him home. His children are no strangers to him talking about Conrad at the dinner table, asking where on earth he could have disappeared to. For months, Elliot chases the fugitive with no new leads. Conrad, it seems, has vanished without a trace. That is, until the fall of 1969. Of all the mysteries in the world, perhaps the greatest is, when will it all end? Or rather, how? Hi, listeners. It's Richard and Molly from the Spotify original from ParCast, Unexplained Mysteries. With the end of the year approaching, Unexplained Mysteries is taking a closer look at some of the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios in a five-part doomsday special you do not want to miss. Throughout the month of December, discover the many ways people have prophesized our demise. From a religious apocalypse and an alien invasion to threats from space and nuclear warfare. We'll even explore how advancements in technology could be our undoing. Do any of us have anything to truly be scared of? Therein lies the mystery. Listen to the Unexplained Mysteries five-part doomsday special, free and only on Spotify. In October 1969, a retired couple from Beechwood, Ohio, are vacationing in Honolulu. They strike up a conversation with a young man who offers to buy them their next drink at the bar inside the Princess Kialani Hotel. The retired gentleman mentions that he's from Cleveland. It's an innocuous enough detail, but it triggers an unusual reaction in the younger man. He quickly makes his excuses and leaves without buying the drink he promised. It isn't until the couple return home to Ohio that they see a picture of Conrad in a newspaper and recognize him as the man from the bar. They call the FBI, but by the time agents follow it up, Conrad has long since disappeared. Later in the year, authorities intercept one communication between Conrad and an unnamed friend. In it, Conrad tells them he has undergone a drastic change in appearance, but doesn't elaborate as to what that might be. Some of his friends believe he's fled the country, disappearing to Europe, maybe. Another says he thinks Conrad would opt for a life at sea, sailing around the world. The truth is far closer to home than anyone realizes. Despite all of the theories and wild speculation, after the close shave in Honolulu, Conrad did in fact stay in the U.S. 
1970, he arrived in Boston, Massachusetts, a little over 600 miles east of the scene of the crime. It's not far from where he went to college and maybe a questionable choice for someone trying to stay off the radar. It's here, though, that he finally starts to build what will become his new life. In early January, he walks into a Social Security Administration office in Boston and asks for a Social Security number under the new name he has chosen for himself. Thomas Randall. It's not unusual in 1970 for people to wait until they're an adult to do this, so it doesn't raise any suspicions. In creating this new identity, he doesn't stray too far from the truth, keeping his same birthday but adding two years to his age. Armed with his new ID, Conrad sets about laying the foundations he'll need to blend in. He opens a bank account, finds a place to live, even gets a job. Golf continues to be one of his passions, so he starts working at the Pembroke Country Club as the assistant club pro, giving lessons to members. He sometimes heads to Florida to play on the winter professional golf circuit. Even though this is exactly the kind of behavior the FBI predicted, he's able to live his life without coming to the attention of anyone in law enforcement. Conrad meets his future wife, Kathy, and the pair marry in 1982. They move to the nearby town of Linfield, Massachusetts. It's around this time that he has a change of career and switches to his other passion, cars. Conrad works at a number of dealerships over the years, selling luxury vehicles like Land Rovers. Like his job at the country club, it's not exactly a role he can hide away in, but Conrad, it seems, has a talent for blending in. To his co-workers, he's friendly and hasn't got a bad word to say about anyone. He socializes with them, but isn't a big drinker. If anyone asks about his past or his family, he doesn't give much away. Friends put this down to him maybe having a bad childhood and don't pry. Whether or not he keeps tabs on the ongoing attempts to track him down isn't clear, but he seems settled in his new life. No sense outwardly, at least, that he's constantly looking over his shoulder. Perhaps Conrad believes that the authorities have finally given up their search. This couldn't be farther from the truth. Conrad is never far from U.S. Marshal John Elliott's thoughts. He carries the case with him through his entire career in the Marshal Service and even into his retirement in 1990. His son, Peter, has followed his dad into law enforcement. After a stint as an undercover narcotics officer, Peter is now a deputy U.S. Marshal and has inherited his father's fascination with the Conrad case. After retiring, John Elliott becomes a private investigator, but regularly brings up Conrad's case with his son. He even makes frequent visits to the local marshal's office to look back through case files and talk it over with Peter. He explains his inability to let the case go in an interview with a journalist in 2008. One of the reasons I stayed after this guy is that some people thought he was some kind of hero or Robin Hood, says John Elliott. He's not. He was nothing but a thief. There hasn't been a significant development since the 1969 sighting in Honolulu, though, and all that father and son can do is hope that Conrad slips up or that somebody turns him in. The FBI are still actively pursuing Conrad, too. As the years drift by, 
there are unconfirmed rumors against Conrad's old school friends that the FBI are sending undercover agents to reunions organized by the school. The other former students from the class of 1967 certainly haven't forgotten their notorious classmate. They still set aside a place on one of the tables for him just in case. The FBI don't confirm or deny rumors about agents attending, but even if it's true, it's to no avail. Conrad's spot stays empty year after year. The mystery surrounding his whereabouts endures though, with old school friends still discussing it at their 50th reunion in 2017. They don't know it at the time, but the answers they want are only a few short years away. Sadly, one person who won't be around to see the mystery solved is John Elliott. He dies in March 2020, aged 83. He had achieved so much in his career, including setting up Ohio's Witness Protection Program in the 1970s. But with his death, the torch is permanently passed from father to son as far as Conrad is concerned. A little over a year later, in May 2021, unbeknown to Peter Elliott, Ted Conrad finally confesses to his family, telling his wife and daughter everything about who he is and what he did as a young man. Soon after coming clean, he loses his voice thanks to the cancer eating away at his lungs. His wife, still reeling from what she's just learned, continues to nurse him through his final days. She even invites friends around to say their goodbyes. Conrad passes away on May 18th. Friends literally line up around the block outside the funeral home to pay their respects. They talk about him as a devoted family man, someone who never broke the rules, none of them any wiser about who he really was. Kathy Randall arranges for her husband's obituary to be published in the Linfield News. It's a celebration of his life, his love of cars and cooking. Ironically, it's this article that finally leads Peter Elliott to the answer he's been seeking since he was a kid at his dad's dinner table. What happened to Ted Conrad? Peter Elliott doesn't say how or exactly when it came to his attention, only that somebody makes contact and points him towards the obituary. How the tip linked the article to the Conrad case is something he doesn't share. When he reads the obituary, the similarities between Randall and Conrad are immediately apparent. Both men share a birthday, albeit two years apart. Like Conrad, Randall was born in Colorado and attended New England College. Another startling similarity is the fact that the names of Randall's parents are the same as Conrad's. His mother, in particular, had the unusual name of Ruthabeth. Peter Elliott and his team start peeling back the layers of Thomas Randall's life. They discover that he filed for bankruptcy in 2014 and are able to locate copies of the forms he filled out. Thanks to his father's efforts back when the crime was committed, Peter Elliott has a confirmed sample of Conrad's handwriting and his signature to compare against the bankruptcy papers. It's a match. Even though the man he now suspects of being Ted Conrad is dead, Peter Elliott knows there's still work to do. 
it's time for a trip to Massachusetts. Peter Elliott and his team arrive in Boston in the second week of November, 2021. They're quickly able to confirm how and where Conrad obtained his new social security number. Next stop, the Randall family home in Linfield. Peter Elliott and his deputy pull up outside the house and knock on the door. When Kathy Randall answers, she's understandably nervous about two U.S. Marshals turning up at her house. You're not in trouble, he tells Randall's widow. I'm just here because I don't think your husband is who he said he was. She lets them in, and Peter Elliott can't shake the feeling that their visit isn't entirely a surprise. His gut tells him she probably expected a knock on the door from someone like him. Kathy confirms Peter Elliott's suspicions, sharing the deathbed confession that Conrad made while he could still speak. She tells Peter Elliott about the life they built together, how she had no clue about his secret until he told her just before his death. She also tells the marshals how her husband had expressed remorse for what he did and that he regretted ever having taken the money. Finally, Peter Elliott can put one of the longest open cases on his books to rest, for him and his dad. The question of the missing cash still remains, though. As he talks to Kathy Randall, Peter Elliott can't help but notice a number of unopened bills lying around. Whatever Conrad did with the money, these plus the 2014 bankruptcy, suggests it's long gone. Maybe he squandered it on bad investments. With Conrad not around to question, we may never know the truth. Peter Elliott heads back to Ohio and on November 12th, 2021, calls a press conference. He and his deputies lay out a number of pieces of evidence on the conference table for journalists to inspect. These include pictures of Conrad from back in the 60s, as well as more recent ones for comparison. They also share the letters he'd sent to his girlfriend back in 1968. When people lie, Peter Elliott says, they lie close to home. As he talks them through the new life that Conrad had constructed for himself, furthering the notion that he was inspired by the Thomas Crown affair, Peter Elliott points out Conrad's interesting choice of location to settle down. Most of the filming for the movie was done in Boston and the surrounding areas. Was this a coincidence or a tribute of sorts to his favorite film? Peter Elliott reveals parts of the conversation he had with Kathy Randall. There's no indication that she had been aware of her husband's secret prior to his confession. When asked why she hadn't come forward back in May, Peter Elliott can only offer his own opinion. He believes they were scared and didn't want their dirty laundry airing in public. Peter Elliott takes several opportunities during the press conference to praise his father. It's the college transcripts that his dad had the foresight to obtain back in 1969 that helped them positively identify Conrad. His only regret is that John Elliott isn't around to witness this. As for next steps, Peter Elliott confirms that the outstanding warrant for Conrad's arrest will be pulled. There's a little more work to do on the case before it's filed away for good, though. Peter Elliott is a thorough man. 
Despite Kathy Randall's assertion that Conrad made no attempt to return home to Ohio or reach out to his family and friends, Peter Elliott needs to make sure of this himself. He tells journalists they'll reverse engineer the case, picking over it piece by piece to see if there's even a hint that Conrad could have been helped by anyone. Then, and only then, will he be able to let it rest for good. One journalist asks him if he found out what Conrad thought of the Thomas Crown remake, starring Pierce Brosnan. Another asks Peter Elliott who will play him and his dad if a movie of the case is ever made. Peter Elliott smiles as he fends off the less than serious questions and elects to bring his briefing on a positive note. He confirms that surviving members of the Conrad family were notified earlier today of these developments. They were a little shocked to hear from the Marshall Service. They did say, however, that they want to reach out to Kathy and Ashley Randall and welcome them into their family. Maybe this will go some way to help Kathy come to terms with her husband's confession. After the press conference, Kathy is approached by the press to give her side of the story. I'm still grieving the loss of my husband, who was a great man, she tells them, but refuses to comment on any specific questions. As for Peter Elliott, while he never got to put a set of handcuffs on Ted Conrad, he did get to lay his ghost to rest. I hope my father is resting a little easier today knowing his investigation and his United States Marshal Service brought closure to this decades-long mystery, Peter Elliott tells reporters. Everything in real life doesn't always end like in the movies. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Edward Dobeck. In June 1955, a 12-year-old girl and her dog discovered the dead body of a teenage girl in the local park. The victim, Nancy Chomet, aged 16, was shot 11 times. When police arrive, they locate a second girl, Michael Ann Ryan, aged 14. Despite their best efforts, the police cannot locate a suspect. However, in 1996, after 41 years, Edward Dobeck is dying of liver cancer. Before he dies, he tells his sister-in-law he gunned the girls down and why. If his confession is true, it could bring resolution to two families plagued by the death of their daughters. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. An alien invasion, nuclear warfare, the second coming. How will the world end? Will we be prepared? And will it matter? 
This December, join Unexplained Mysteries for a five-part doomsday special examining the many theories about humanity's ultimate demise. We're counting down to the end of the year with the most infamous end-of-the-world scenarios of all time. Listen to the Unexplained Mysteries five-part doomsday special, free and only on Spotify.